Hello, my name is Fien de Bloch and my Wonder Lab is a manuscript library. Hi, it's Maria here, and this is Alice in Wonderlab, a podcast about science and the women who make it. Our Alice today is Finn de Bloch, whose research field is history of science. More specifically, she studies science in late medieval Islam. I'm a guest professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at Ghent University, and I'm also a voluntary postdoctoral researcher of uh, Islamic intellectual history. My research focuses on the signs of the stars in the late 15th century Syria and Egypt, and all the texts uh, related to this subject are only available in manuscripts. They're not edited, or mostly not edited yet, not published yet. So the manuscript library is really where my research begins. I met Finn at Ghent University, where she is teaching a bachelor and a master class this year. Finn likes teaching just as much as she likes doing research. I like teaching, yes. Uh, I've been teaching quite a lot over the last few years. Uh, and this year I'm also teaching a, a master's course. And I really like that. I like teaching in the bachelor courses too, but the master's course, um, Islam in the, and the Global uh, World. And the theme we're talking about this semester is the presumed dichotomy between uh, Islam and science and the effect that has on different research topics. And I really like the fact that in the master's course, teaching is not that different or that far from research anymore. So the discussions that I like to have or start with my research sometimes will happen in class and I really like that about teaching. She recently came back after taking some time off from academia. I got some criticism on my uh, PhD research that really gave me a lot of stress. I didn't really believe in research in general anymore, I think, or I, I did believe in research, but I was a bit demotivated by the, the hierarchical structure or the power structure sometimes. The thing that I disliked the most was not the criticism in itself, but the way in which it happened and the fact that it was that it really felt like something personal or something related to um, well power structures. What I like the most in research is the fact that you're working in an environment in which you can discuss and keep on questioning certain things. But that is only possible, I think when you feel that you're in a safe environment and the kind of criticism that takes away well, the safe environment is not the kind of criticism that is part of research or that makes you gain new insights, but that's 
the kind of criticism that just stops all critical thinking. So yeah, that sort of led me astray uh, for a bit. But then once I, I stopped doing research, I realized how much I liked it. And then once I was away from university, I realized all the more that I went away for the wrong reasons. Finn's PhD dissertation attracted criticism, as it often happens to innovative studies that challenge well-established assumptions. And this is precisely what Finn did. So brace yourself, because this episode is probably going to shake up your ideas about science and the history of science. I started studying philosophy here and I got interested in the intellectual history of the Islamic world because I've always been interested in uh, history of religion, history of knowledge, but I had the impression while I was studying philosophy that a lot of people had something to say about Islam and about the history of Islam. The people talking about it in the media were not the people really reading the text, specializing in the matter. So I started to get interested in that topic and then I took some language classes in Arabic and then I took some classes of Arabic and Islamic studies as minor classes and I finished my bachelor and my master's in philosophy and after that I wanted to complete the program of Arabic and Islamic studies too, so I did my bachelor and master's in that too. As a philosophy student, Finn was especially fascinated by epistemology, that is, the branch of philosophy concerned with human knowledge. This, coupled with her interest in the Islamic world, led her to study two scientific practices specific to medieval Islam, the science of timekeeping and the science of the rules and regulations of the stars. Timekeepers were Islamic scholars who calculated the correct times for the five daily prayers in a certain place, based on the positions of what they called the seven planets, namely the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. The complex calculations they performed were grounded on ancient Greek astronomy, the so-called Ptolemaic system. According to modern scholars, they were only busy with mathematical and astronomical computations. But when she approached the sources, Finn found out that this view is not really accurate. My research actually started from a manuscript that I studied for my uh, master's thesis. I studied a manual for timekeeping written by Ibn Shatir, that's a 14th century Syrian uh, scholar. When I was studying that manuscript, I saw that there were a lot of chapters on practices that we would nowadays consider astrology, whereas the Islamic timekeeper, not only Ibn Shatir, but the profession in general, was seen as someone who didn't practice astrology because he was working at a religious institution, a madrasa or a mosque. So he was seen as not practicing astrology. So then I started 
looking into related sources and I found out that, well, I found similar references and that was actually the starting point for my research. For my PhD research, I studied two collections of texts, the first of which was a collection of texts written by timekeepers. For example, the texts I focused on contained tables uh, that listed the positions of the um, what they refer to as the seven planets at specific moments in time. Uh, but the genre in general also contained, well, information about birth horoscopes or other practices that we would nowadays consider astrology, but they were not referred to as such, they were referred to as timekeeping. On the contrary, what the sources call science of the rules and regulations of the stars is put by modern scholars in the same box as what we today consider as astrology. Scorpio, your daily life is about to be it's about Gemini working within Sagittarius. But Finn came to realize that it entails much more than that. And then on the other hand, I studied a collection of texts that we would today also consider astrology, but that is occult in contrast to the sources written by the timekeepers. Well, first and foremost, because the historical actors themselves refer to uh, what they were doing as something occult, something related to the invisible, something for which one needed insight, as they would state it themselves. Yeah, the second collections of texts, their astrology is presented as a subdiscipline of what is referred to as the signs of letters and the signs of letters or the signs of letters and names as it's sometimes also called is a discipline in which the entire world is seen as a mathematical structure that can be grasped through the study of mathematics and also through language uh, because letters, especially letters of the Arabic alphabet, are seen as having mathematical value that can give insight into the hidden uh, meaning or the hidden the hidden in itself. So that can bring you, of course, from an Islamic perspective, uh, closer to God. Finn has realized that both the disciplines she was studying and the manuscripts pertaining to them have been given the wrong labels by modern scholars. Labels that do not reflect the content of the manuscripts themselves, nor how people back then perceived the two disciplines. She showed me an example of a horoscope and explained me what it was used for. Okay, so this is our pictures of four folios of a manuscript. A manuscript from the late 15th century Sultanate of Cairo. And these four folios are actually... Uh, reports of the location of the stars during specific uh, military battles in the frontier zone of the Sultanate. Can I give a look? Yes, of course. So the battles have already happened and he studied the astrological situation at the moment of the battle yes. to understand how it impacted yes. on the battle itself. He explains... Um, why things happened uh, like they happened. Yeah. Based on the position of planets and yes. stars at uh, the very moment. Yes, indeed. There's um, a square 
that, well, is actually a horoscope and it represents the sky. So here are the names of all the planets uh, and then their location in one of the 12 houses, actually the horoscopes as we still know them uh, today. And this horoscope is compiled for, well, one of the leaders in the battle to get an idea of uh, his chances at winning the battle at the beginning or what his chances were at the beginning of the event. So this kind of sciences that today we don't even consider mm -hmm. sciences were taken into account mm -hmm. on a political level. Uh, yes, that's also something I find uh, very fascinating about this manuscript, the fact that it considers actual political events. There's a certain paragraph in which the author well, refers to what he's doing as giving an interpretation rather than a practice uh, related to prognostication, that he's actually analyzing the events rather than that he's arguing what is going to happen. He's just reading the signs that God has put into the world, into the heavens. So I think there must be some kind of tension, but the, the fact that it is used and that, as he mentions, important lead figures came to him for uh, information shows that this tension was not really something that prohibited uh, scholars like him to write these kind of texts. Someone might be thinking, well, all this has very little to do with real science anyway. How can horoscopes and occult practices qualify as history of science? The difference that's been made between history of science and history of religion and history of magic is very much a modern categorization, but it's used in a lot of studies on the history of astrology and astronomy in the period. And it's also used in a lot of catalogs as a way of classifying uh, these manuscripts. And the result of that is that we often only look at the texts that are seen as predecessors of what we would today consider science. So we have a very one-sided view on the intellectual products of the period. When we look at categories, the categories of science, religion, and also magic in history, we see that since the 19th century, these three disciplines are seen as totally different disciplines. But when we look at pre-modern texts, that distinction is not there. And by implying the distinction, we actually not only impose our interpretation, but we also hide certain aspects of these texts and we even hide certain texts. We're not going to look at certain parts of the intellectual history because it doesn't fit our present-day categories. My own research about the history of signs of the stars in the late 15th century Egypt and Syria is located exactly in the middle between what could be considered history of science, history of religion and history of magic because it considers uh, or it focuses on what we would nowadays uh, call astrology. But the categories used by the historical actors are on the one hand the signs of timekeeping and on the other hand the signs of the rules and regulations of the stars. And where in earlier research that is seen as astrology versus astronomy, actually when you look into the texts you see that 
the timekeepers were also practicing what we would nowadays consider astrology and the scholars practicing the science of the rules and regulations of the stars are not merely astrologers but are part of a movement that consider uh, astrology as an important method or as an important technique to gain insight in the universe that according to them is structured in a mathematical way. Um, their practice is not the same as what we would today classify as astrology. It's a lot more than that, but you can only see that if you don't take the categories for granted. The mismatch between what we consider as science today and what was considered as science in the past has been taken into account in the European context. Besides being a mathematician, a physicist and an astronomer, Isaac Newton was also a theologian, a philosopher and an alchemist. But we do not throw away his whole contribution to science because of that. And yet, this is precisely what modern scholars did with the sources studied by Finn. So what Finn has exposed in her thesis is a Eurocentric bias in her own field. When you look at European history of science, there has been a lot of research into the occult disciplines that had an influence on people we consider important scientists today or on uh, modern science as we see it today. So there it seems to be accepted that the occult also has a place in history of science, whereas when we look at late 15th century Egypt and Syria, it's not accepted as much. So it seems like, well, it's a bit of a strange difference that in the European context, texts on astrology are considered to have played a role in specific astronomical evolutions or findings, whereas in the Islamic world, they're seen as a sign of intellectual decline. So uh, science is, of course, a terminology that has in itself a bit of a a Eurocentric view, especially when it comes to history of science in the Islamic world, or in this case, especially in uh, Egypt and Syria, I think it's very important to be aware that also in history or in history research, it's important to give agency to the authors of the text, to the people that you're yeah, trying to study, even though they're 14th or 15th century scholars who you can't interview uh, anymore. But by not imposing your own categories on the text, I think that you can sort of come to terms with the question of Orientalism, if you can, can refer to it like that in historical research. Orientalism is a term created by Edward Said, a Palestinian-American scholar and cultural critic. In his 1978 book, Said argued that the way in which Western scholars had so far studied and represented the Middle East was not objective. It was distorted by a political bias, direct consequence of our colonial past. In his view, instead of making Eastern cultures better known to us, Oriental studies fostered discrimination and supported Western cultural imperialism. Edward Said's work has had, a, of course, a, a big influence on the field and has been 
extensively debated and come to terms with in mostly political studies or present-day studies about the, the Islamic world. But I don't think that is always the case in um, intellectual history of the Islamic world. For example, when it comes to my own research, the sources that I'm studying, the fact that they fall outside of the category of history of science is a way of imposing present-day European categories on sources that were not written in Europe and that are not modern. So that is, in a way, Orientalism, not only in a geographical sense, but also as a sort of an anachronism, like we're are imposing modern categories onto sources that are pre-modern, and we're imposing categories that are developed and very much defined in the West and based on the West onto sources that are not in any way related to that. It confronts us with the presumptions we have and the role they play in, well, the narratives we tell. And I don't want to sound too naive about that. Um, I know that university research won't change the world in the first place, but I do think that it's important to keep on trying to rethink the categories and the knowledge structures that divide rather than uh, give us insight into other uh, cultures and periods. In her thesis, Finn did not limit herself to put the finger on the problem. She also proposed a solution. The cornerstone of Finn's innovative research is her material approach to the texts she studied. As she said at the beginning, most of these texts do not exist as published books. They are only available in manuscripts, written down by hand by the authors themselves or by someone who needed a copy. Finn thinks that the best way to overcome the bias encountered in contemporary studies is to let the manuscripts talk to her. These manuscripts are kept at different libraries. A lot of them are located in the Dar al-Qutub, so the National Library of Egypt in Cairo. But there are also manuscripts in Madrid, Leiden, London. I've been to Berlin also. I always travel to the manuscript library itself because on the one hand, a reproduction is not the same as seeing the actual manuscript, I mean, as seeing the actual paper. And on the other hand, in some reproductions or scans, the marginal notes are cut off. And these marginal notes, from a material point of view, are not only very interesting, but also very important to get an idea about the meaning of a text. Manuscripts are not just important because of the texts they contain. They also provide material evidence on how those texts were received, read, copied, used, studied, interpreted and even modified. Just like we all do today, book readers in the past would mark their name on the front page, scribble on the margins, take notes on blank spaces. These marginal notes, together with the handwriting, the size of a manuscript, the quality of the paper and of the binding, can tell us a lot. For example, they can tell us if the book was meant to be carried around and browsed often, or to be kept on a shelf and opened every now and then. When studied as an object and not just as a text, a manuscript makes the past come alive. I like to think of intellectual history in a material way, which means that I 
look at texts as material material things and not only in the sense that I consider it important to look at the paper and all these yeah, literally material aspects but also or I'd like to think of a text as well a textual instrument a textual thing that actually comes from a certain uh, background that is produced in a certain environment that circulated in a certain environment and that had effects on that environment first I'll take a look at the first and the last pages I would always look for a colophon first the colophon is uh, often written in a bit of a triangular way not always but often at the end of the manuscript uh, there the author states that he has written it uh, when he has written it and sometimes if it's a copy who he copied it from and that provides an interesting starting point to look at the other notes or to look at the text itself because then you get an idea of yeah where the text was used and that this is an interesting part of yeah, getting to know the meaning of the text uh, the role that the text played in the context of the copyist. As we heard at the beginning, Finn's innovative approach to her subject and the results she proposed won her some harsh criticism. But later on, they also won her a prize. And, most importantly, the constructive exchange she was craving for. In October uh, 2020, I won the Middle East Medievals Dissertation Prize um, which was very nice and that gave me the, well, some people contacted me because they heard about my research because of that prize and that really gave me the possibility to discuss certain topics again, to discuss uh, my research again, which was very nice because I finished uh, my dissertation and I defended my dissertation during COVID, so everything was online and although there was of course a bit of a discussion yeah I really felt that everything had happened so quickly and without really having the chance to actually talk to people or um, discuss I mean I answered the big questions during my defense but I didn't get the chance to talk about the details with the people of my committee afterwards uh, for example and that's something that I only realized that I uh, missed uh, when I talked to people after uh, winning the prize. So that was, uh, yeah, nice. Today, Finn draws on her own past experience for strength. I asked her if she had any piece of advice based on that experience. Um, when it comes to advice for people who are thinking about starting a PhD but are not sure yet, I would advise you to follow your gut feeling actually because yeah you can think things through plan things but when it comes to phd research i mean you're always studying something that is new that's why it's it's phd research uh, you don't know for sure how it will go so you can't think it through entirely uh, before you begin uh, so the fact that you really want to do that i think is more important than any other questions or doubts that come to mind and when it comes to uh, people in the, the first years of their PhD, my advice would be that I know from experience that academia, especially when you've just started, can be really overwhelming. 
but most of the time that doesn't say anything about your capacities that has to do with a lot of things a lot of influence a lot of structures a lot of a lot of the pressure that you've been experiencing especially in phd research you're always working or you're mostly working on your own especially in my field if you're studying text you're always on your own at your desk and sometimes you tend to forget what you've done or or what you've or the insights that you've already gained just because you're in such an isolated environment so there my advice would be first don't make that kind of situation cause self-doubt and on the other hand keep communicating to people Finn's story left me with a few thoughts science cannot be separated from the cultural context that produces it Today, we believe that only our modern scientific method can provide objective and reliable knowledge. But so did scientists in the past, who had different methods and a different concept of science altogether. And I am pretty sure that centuries from now, the concept of science and its methods will be different still. Science is, and it has always been, about knowing more, about understanding better. What we try to understand and how changes across centuries and cultures. What does not change is the fact that science walks longer distances when it is based on collective efforts, constructive criticism, exchange of ideas, and mutual as well as self-questioning. Alice in Wonderlab is a production of Kaleid Acoustics. Huge thanks to Finn the Block for shaking up our views on science and for sharing with us her personal experience as a teacher and researcher. You will find pictures of Finn and of her manuscripts on Kaleid Acoustics' Instagram and Facebook pages and on the blog post about these episodes on our website www.kaleidacoustics.com blog. We are preparing a mini-season of four episodes dedicated to young women in STEM disciplines, one for each letter of the acronym. Technology and engineering are already covered, but we are still looking for Alice's for the episodes on hard sciences and mathematics. Stay tuned to know more, or get in touch if you want to volunteer. You can drop us an email at kaledacoustics at gmail.com. 